It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we are going back to the beginner's guide to Japanese wrestling. Now, we have talked a lot about the big schism in Japanese wrestling in the late 1990s, the second exodus of All Japan Pro Wrestling, when NOAA was formed. However, slightly before then, there was another exodus. Well, not really so much of an exodus. It was an exodus of two, so it's not as well talked about, uh, which was the promotion that would become Pro Wrestling Zero One. Now, John, imagine... Oh, sorry, I shouldn't mention, by the way, that John Dinsdale is here today. I hope you are better, John. This is the reason why we're going on Monday night rather than Sunday night, and maybe with you on Tuesday morning, depending on how tired I am after recording this. John, how are you? I'm much better. Um, something I ate didn't agree with me, and uh, I unfortunately caused a traffic jam on the podcast. But uh, we're talking zero one today, and it might just be one of the best tapes we've watched for this show that doesn't involve blood and guts. <laughs> so imagine you, John, are Shinya Hashimoto, the destroyer, the IWGP heavyweight champion, and arguably the greatest purveyor of strong style in the company's history. You have literally done it all. You've won the championship. You buried Tatsumi Fujinami's legacy. You've won the G1 Climax. There is literally nothing else left in the company for you to do. You destroy the UWFI in the biggest interpromotional feud in pro wrestling history and influence the birth of the NWO and therefore everything that has come since in pro wrestling in the last 25 years. What do you do next? Well, you could switch companies, you could start your own because you clearly have kind of dominated what anyone else can offer you but you could always offer yourself new opportunities. Well, that's pretty much what happened by, well, trying to work some politics within New Japan Pro Wrestling. Shinya Hashimoto decided, for good or ill, after the UWFI feud, which obviously worked incredibly well as it was the biggest box office in Japanese or indeed world wrestling history, selling out the Tokyo Diet Dome four times in a year, that it would be a good idea if New Japan had a division that worked specifically with different companies so that you could hire people in not call it a new japan show and kind of get away with things you know you could keep new japan canon as one thing and have big super matches within a different company new japan weren't down for that they didn't think it was a good idea and they fired hashimoto in 2000 which is a bit as ungrateful to be honest with you uh he was decided he did not his services were no longer required which, given what happened in New Japan over the next five years, was probably not a good idea. However, for the time being, he was without employment. Now, junior heavyweight Shinjiro Otani, who pretty much was in the same position as Hashimoto, who was, you know, a six or seven year pro by this point, was one of the best junior heavyweights in the world. But as we've so often talked about, was in the unfortunate position of being in the greatest, greatest generation of junior heavyweights ever. We're talking Jushin Liger, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, uh, Too Cold Scorpio, Black Cat. That's just within their company. There was Grand Naniwa, there was Super Delphin, there was uh, all of these guys that we've talked about long and hard over that period who were still right at the top of their game. And Otani doesn't really get the credit he deserves of being one of the greatest junior heavyweights for all time of all time because he was just that far away from the main event, just a little bit further away from the main event than he needed to be. And he was also kind of sick of being a junior heavyweight. He wanted to move up in, to be honest, it suited his style a lot better. He wasn't really a traditional New Japan junior heavyweight. He wasn't flashy. He turned up in black boots. He turned up in black tights. And he kicked the hell out of you for 20 minutes until he won, basically. He was incredibly gifted as a technical wrestler, he was a fair aerial wrestler, given his style. He was the master of the slingshot dropkick, but he was just a tough dude that came along and did tough things, much the same as Hashimoto did in the heavyweight division. They were kind of peas in the pod. So Atani and Hashimoto developed this idea for a new company 
called Pro Wrestling Zero One, which would feature strong style in the sense of New Japan Pro Wrestling, but would be quite happy to work with anyone who would give them a big match. Now, John, you've watched a lot of Pro Wrestling Zero One. What's your thoughts on the company as a whole? Zero One is probably one of the more unique products you get out there because, as you said, they sort of were always willing to work with anyone that would give them something in return. And you get some of the, like, just looking at the highlight here we're about to do, you get some pretty damn good matches from really damn good people at the time. And that still happens quite a lot now. I mean, Otani's still going. And, yeah, you see a lot of sort of outcasts from other companies appearing, some stars from other companies appearing, and that still happens now. It's it's a great hybrid company that took a good idea and made it workable. Yeah, for sure. And this is, we're talking two or three years into the company when we're joining it here. Um, What we're going to look at today is the highlight tape from All Japan Pro Wrestling. It is literally the only full reviewable content I could find of Zero One. There's plenty of Zero One USA, and we could probably talk a lot about how uh, Zero One kind of developed uh, an international uh, affiliate program. It was a key member of the NWA, and Hashimoto would go on to be NWA heavyweight champion of the world, defeating Steve Carino, of all people, and then basically being the mentor of Steve Carino in his Japanese career over the next few years, which led him to his big run with the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. It's interesting to me how Pro Wrestling Zero One kind of... Um, <sighs> found this little niche, but it was a pretty big niche, and they made it wider and wider and wider. Uh, At the moment, it's kind of on a downswing just because of the COVID situation, and it's gone on a hiatus. But they're even being progressive with that. They wanted, uh, I was reading just as I was going through the the history of the company earlier, just to get my notes together. They, before the the downturn, they were planning on making sure that everyone had full-time contracts and social security. They were going to give them health insurance and and make sure the dojo guys were always well looked after. And it's like, you don't get that in wrestling companies anywhere. <laughs> it's usually, here's your money, look after yourself. But it's kind of the way of things with a lot of Japanese companies, especially the smaller ones. They can't afford to pay the big contracts, but they can surely afford to give you health insurance to make sure you're looked after. Osaka Pro, one of the other companies that we've talked about, also actually managed to have employment programs for their wrestlers uh, up until the end of Osaka Pro. They, uh, you know, they used to go retraining them. And uh, they had, had I think they had a noodle store outside one of the wrestling stadiums that they did in Osaka. You know, so the smaller companies do tend to do things a bit differently to the bigger companies because they want their employees to be happy employees, especially as they can't afford to pay them as much. It's quite funny. Um, a lot of the wrestlers that appear on this tape were also doing work with um, MLW. So Zero One were conquering the sort of American market before New Japan even considered it. Yeah, they had an American office, the Zero One USA, which I think was based in California, as you'd expect. Most of the smaller affiliates of Japanese companies tend to be based in California. Pretty much for a couple of reasons. One, it's closest. And two, there was the links from the old JWA, Ricky Dozan's company, worked with Roy Shire's office out of San Francisco a lot, um, as we discussed when we looked at that very first JWA uh, uh, tournament, the World League tournament. Um, a lot of the wrestlers came from San Francisco, didn't they? So yeah. there's a lot of connection there. So, But anywho, let us go to the first match on this review tape. It's called AJPW versus Zero One. Um, or All Japan Pro Wrestling versus Zero One. We'll put it in the link, as we normally do. Um, and I will actually put this uh, match list, which I had to research myself. <laughs> you were painstakingly. I had to painstakingly figure out where matches were held and what were held, because some of them were on cage match, and then figure out and compare pictures. I'm holding up. I had the matches on YouTube pause as I held my computer screen up to make sure the people were right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Otani, as in Shinjiro Otani, president of Zero One, tagged with Masato Tanaka, vice president of Zero One, against Hade- oh, uh, yeah, against Teo Kia, uh, or Masura Mathman, as we talked about with Alex a few weeks ago when we talked about the end of all Japan pro wrestling. He was one of the two loyal Japanese wrestlers that stayed on the roster, and Hideki Hosaka. 
in a tag match that was pretty fiery at Kurikuno, wasn't it? Yeah, this was um, quite the shit kicker of a match. Mainly because this I is the way you... in it. <laughs> this is the way you kick things off. If you're going to impress people, this is how you start. That's what I liked. It was well-told story, a lot of fire. In fact, it's one of the best tag matches I've ever seen. Uh, just for context, this is zero one invading all Japan, correct? Not to the way around. Yes. Right, yes, then, it yeah, is. This it is. is definitely how you kick off an invasion angle because these two come in, they win, and they're just merciless. <laughs> <laughs> it is very much a we're here, you're the bitch now type situation. Yes, I mean, Otani is a tough old bastard, isn't he? And him and Tanaka made a very potent tag team. You know, you're talking post-FMW Tanaka was actually probably one of the most productive parts of his career because he wasn't having to fall off ladders all the time. He was just having wrestling matches. And he kind of cemented... Sorry? FMW refugees in this, actually. Yeah. You've got Hideki Osaka, and you see a few others pop up as time goes on. It's... As you said, they sort of drifted away from the sort of smouldering wreck that was FMW and were able to find work elsewhere. Osaka works for Noah now, doesn't he, I think? I think so. I know he's still doing it. Yeah, I think he's probably... I think he's one of the, like, opening card tag guys in in, in, Noah, in Noah. And, of course, Teokia is kind of semi-retired and works for whoever pays him the most money. Well, when <laughs> Because there's um, a few matches that happen later down the line with Tyok here, and I just kind of like in MLW when he because he goes to MLW and he becomes like a major player there, like a top heel type destroyer guy. But they mm. build him as from Hawaii, which I think he actually what which I'm guessing. Yeah, that? yeah, he was Hawaiian. He, yes, he's the son of Prince Ayukaya. And so um, he starts feuding with Kojima. And we'll seal it over the sort of MLW World Heavyweight title. Mm. We'll see them teaming later. So I'm trying to... I can't quite remember the MLW timeline as to when this would have happened. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say he's not the son son of Prince Ayokea. That's the WCW um, cruiserweight Prince Ayokea. Then the nurse formerly known as Prince Ayokea, who suffered from Disco Inferno's junior heavyweight booking. Um, Tayoke, they are actually brothers though. It's Curtis Ayokea who's the father of Tayoke. <laughs> <laughs> and th- this is a corking match, and it's very bloody for an old Japan show. There was a lot of red stuff going on. There's a lot of red stuff on this entire tape. And then to finish it all off, Jazu Yamazaki, former booker of UWFI, who's found work with all Japan Pro Wrestling, comes in and kicks things off for himself. And that's a crack at people for no apparent reason. He wants to have a go at the police at the uh, Pro Wrestling Zero One guys as well. Because, of course, he's a former New Japan guy because he was in the New Japan Dojo. He was found a home in All Japan because he got em- he got embraced by the All Japan fans as a, as a genuine badass shooter. So he's against the strong style guys who were kind of like ruining him when he was younger kind of deal. It's a long way around, basically. <laughs> and it just results in a really fun beatdown segment. <laughs> yes. Yamazaki now is a commentator for New Japan Pro Wrestling and was in the Rambo a couple of years ago and nearly won as well. <laughs> but yeah, that opener is like sets the tone. It's like this is a seriously heated feud. They mean business. There is no messing about here. There are very few fucks given in this particular lineup of matches. So we'll move on to the second one which is really intense. In fact, it's one of the most intense junior heavyweight matches I've ever seen. Tatsuki Takawa challenges Kendo Kashin for the All Japan Pro Wrestling World Junior Heavyweight Championship. Now, the All Japan Pro Wrestling Junior Heavyweight Championship is not the greatest of junior heavyweight championships. It has been drugged through the mud a couple of times. However, Kendo Kashin, fresh off his IWGP heavyweight championship run, because he's a former New Japan guy, who was as hot as a hot thing at the time, and jumped ship in the middle of all that mess, and was a big name, and became an All Japan loyalist. Takikawa was a a 0-1 loyalist, and you couldn't really get two different styles of wrestlers 
But that's what happens if you want to make good matches. Styles make matches. So Kishin, who's an aerial-style luchador shooter, versus Takawa, who's a straight-up brawler, meant you had really good chemistry. What's your thoughts on this one, John? You definitely summed it up correctly. This was intense. This got nasty, and it, <laughs> it went quite a while as well. It wasn't you sort of jump everywhere, um, sort of high-flying junior match. This was very, very mixed, you know, very heavy. It was really fun to watch as well. It, yeah, couldn't have asked for two better styles to try and mash together. Yeah, they, they complement each other well. And it, it fitted what they were trying to do. They were trying to tell the story of this invading force. And the other junior heavyweights were all vying for position. It's a bit like Noah's junior heavyweight division now, where fights just break out between factions every 35 seconds. <laughs> you know, the Noah junior heavyweight division is extra, as it's been called this year. Somebody gets the belt and somebody cracks them around the back of the head. Usually the person's best friend who they've known for 15 years. Um, so yeah, it was very much like that, and it kind of like got me back into like the early '90s, like when WAR, which had the hottest junior heavyweight division in the world, invaded New Japan Pro Wrestling in the mid '90s for some really hot matchups, and it was like that. This was really fun to watch, and Takawa is kind of like black tights, black boots, straight up and down wrestling guy, and you don't think he's going to be that interesting to watch, but by Gummy can go, can he? And he's got the intensity. He definitely has, but he's um the one thing I will notice is there are a lot of shaved heads in this um tear. <laughs> it's it, the They blend into each other. Yes, this is the thing. Like all of the well, I mean, who was the boss? It was Muta, wasn't it? So at the time, as we discussed a few weeks ago when we did the schism story between all Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, Matoko Baba had hit a bit of a brick wall because she didn't have a roster. Kawada didn't want to be president because, well, he was kind of at the end of his run and wanted to take a step back from being a pro wrestler, to be honest with you. And um, she had a company that was falling apart around its ears. And in previous guises of such things happening, for instance, the end of the JWA when Baba left and then when, well, Inoki was fired long before Baba was, you know, the JWA just kind of disintegrated. There was no roster, so there was no wrestling. And she didn't want that to happen. So she turned to Kiyeji Muto, who was out of contract with New Japan Pro Wrestling. She offered him the presidency of the company. Kawada was on board. They went and made a ton of money, you know, because there was loads of big matches there for them to have. Uh, Muto had big matches with Steve Williams. He had big matches with a lot of the Air Japan stars that were still there. Kawada, obviously... But his big feud with Tenaru that got him the got him to the triple crown was the thing that really put him on the map with the company. And that was really important to the growth of all Japan Pro Wrestling to where we are here, where they can go to Osaka Joe Hall on a regular basis. And that's where the next match we have, which is Atani and Tanaka versus Teokia and Satoshi Kojima on the last night of the championship tag team tournament championship carnival tag team tournament not the championship the real world tag league we'll go right in the end it's only like the biggest tag tournament of all time the real world tag league otani and tanaka versus tiokia and satoshi kojima is another intense battle I mean, we talked about the world tag league how you know it was really competitive last year and there were some great teams and they had big matches this was still a period of time in the early 2000s where the big singles names advanced through winning tag team titles and the tag team titles were just as important as the heavyweight championships and kojima who had jumped ship with muto from new japan pro wrestling was really on fire in this company and he was a major draw he was on his way to becoming the all japan triple crown heavyweight champion and teokia was still a major star within the company because of his presence you know babble liked him she kind of pinned him for the top so they had a lot of uh what's the word momentum going forward from that you put them two up against atani and tanaka the president and vice the vice presidents of the the company and that's that's fire isn't it that's that's a match and all four of them can go oh this was insanely fun 
like often when I see tag matches, I'm like, right, there's going to be some slack. So no, no slack here. <laughs> this was just violent, and it was amazing. And you can see how much of a megastar Kojima was at the time. The crowd are just rioting for him. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, anyone who saw Kojima versus Kenta at Wrestle Kingdom, you know how good he can be. When he's given the right opponent and given time to work, he comes across like gangbusters. He isn't just opening card fodder that's getting the young boys over. He actually still knows what he's doing. And if you gave Kojima a run at Ibushi, he'd do it right. And he'd make the crowd bay for blood. And he's just the right person in this particular environment. Kay is not a, a big heat-getting guy. He's just a guy who wrestles, who's charismatic, and the crowd connect with him. But we know how much heat Tanaka can create as a babyface, and he can create just as much as a heel. And Atani has been making niggling heat for 10 years at this point. So this was absolute tension. The two best teams in the tournament, arguably the two best tag teams in the world at the time, and that's what the blow off the tournament was, and that's what you needed to make this feud work. It had to have this level of tension. I can't tell you if this is going to be a compliment or an insult, but Otani doesn't look any different how he does now. It's like he hasn't aged. The only thing that's changed about Otani from 1997 is the fact he's put on about 40 pounds, evenly spread over his entire body, so he just looks slightly bigger than he it's used like to. <laughs> and And he has red on his tights now as opposed to just pure black. <laughs> symbolize the blood of his enemies. <laughs> I was gushing that Tani was meant to be in the 2019 MLW Opera Cup, and for whatever reason, he ended up like not in it. I was so gutted because I was going to get to see what 2019 Otani was going to be like. He was in the tag match, the Tiger Mask retirement tag match, not Tiger Mask, the Jushin Liger retirement tag match on night one of Wrestle Kingdom last year. Pretty sure that's the last match I saw him in, actually. Yeah, same for me. He still, yeah, he still goes. He's still snorting and annoying and <laughs> just like... But even, I mean, even when he was a junior heavyweight, the heat he used to get in those matches, everyone loved him in New Japan. He was a cocky little shit, uh, but, you know, everyone loved him. It's if you like, back it up, you're allowed to have that attitude. Yeah, that's it. He was just like... He, but he, the only... I kind of see him as, like, a prototype version of Kishida. You know, he was... He had a little bit of aerial work, but it was ground and pound that got things done. And that attitude matched with that. Kishida was the happy-go-lucky baby-faced version of Atani in my eyes. If that makes sense, and also you know, the one that made a very bad decision. He always wanted to. He always wanted to try. America. I'm not sure it is for him. I think he always wanted to try American wrestling. He's getting well paid for what he's doing. I think he <laughs> picked a better company. That's not, not wants... NXT. NXT have like great people, and sometimes they know how to use them. It's just Kushida. He's never clicked. Every time I see him, they've got him in some new gimmick, and it just doesn't work. No. And if he but comes... where else could... Sorry. I was going to say, he won't go to Impact to earn less money to work less. MLW couldn't have afforded him, and Ring of Honor already had him. And... I just wish he'd waited a little bit longer and tried AEW, to be honest. Because at least then he'd yeah. have shooters to work with. It's like True. He... You could have so easily just skipped NXT with Kushida. And if you really needed to sort of introduce him properly, they could have put him in a feud with like Nakamura or Cesaro, people who would easily have showcased what he was good at. Because, like, imagine Otani versus Cesaro, just for a second. <laughs> like, I how pretty much think Cesaro that... imagines him. Like, just, just to sort of keep us on point, because I have a habit of going off on tangents. Like, how cool would yeah. be? That's just what they could have done with Kushida, but instead he's languishing in NXT as a tag guy who isn't progressing. It's Well, you know he's never going to make it on the main roster because he's a foot too short. We'll wait and see when Vince eventually keels over. If he Possibly. That's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, it's like, 
look how long it took Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan is arguably the greatest North American wrestler of the last 30 years. And it took him about six years to get over with the boss to enable himself to get over. So, you know, what chance does Kushida have? And I'm not knocking Kushida. I can understand why he'd want to go. You want to be an American wrestler, you go work for the biggest company. And there was no one really else that was viable for him at the time. It's sad that it work. makes sense. Yeah, but that's it. Professional wrestling. That's the thing. They've got to earn a living first. Anyway, let's go back to the, the history of Japanese wrestling. So, Oh, God, have you seen what match is next? Well, the next match was Kojima and Kendo Kashin against Shinya Hashimoto making his first appearance on this date and Kazuyuki Ogasawara at Osaka Joe Hall. Now, Kazuyuki Ogasawara was quite clearly a martial artist of minimal wrestling experience, so it was a really good idea to stick him in with Kishin and Kojima, who could spend their time kicking him out of the ring to make sure he didn't do any harm. <laughs> and then you just this have was... Hashimoto there to kick the life out of everyone. Yes, this, this, this was an absolute classic Hashimoto match. The first time I saw Shinya Hashimoto wrestle, right, was on a New Japan show in the early 90s. And, and me and my dad, as we know, my dad no longer with us, but was a big New Japan fan in the 90s, as everyone was, because New Japan was the best company in the 1990s. Uh, we're watching it, and Chono tags in Hashimoto, and neither of us have seen Hashimoto anymore. My dad goes, what's that little barrel going to do? And then he proceeded to kick Mike Enos's soul from his body. So... That, that was pretty much what happened here. Kojima was on the receiving end, and Kishin, for that matter, was on the receiving end of a full-on Hashimoto postal moment. He was trying to keep his quite clearly incompetent tag partner out of trouble for most of this match and still make it compelling. I mean, Agasaro tried really hard, and he did okay with runnings and stuff, but he clearly did not have enough training to be put in this position. But Kojima, Kishin, and... Uh, Ashimoto knew exactly what to do to protect him really, really well. And as a result of this match, this match has plenty of fire and goes along really well. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's exactly as you say. Hashimoto is he was such an next level guy. And especially when you put him against other heavy hitters. Like him and Kojima, it's just oh man. If you like violence, it's honestly Every match just is going to sound the same for me because it was all just awesome. Like, I cannot believe how much I enjoyed this card, like this video. <laughs> it's just hard-hitting match after hard-hitting match after hard-hitting match. And now Hashimoto's in the mix, just kicking the life out of everyone. It's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is. It is really... It's the perfect mix. Well, to be honest with you, I think this is kind of like if New Japan had, to, to be fair to New Japan, they couldn't hang about with the guys they had at the top of the card. They had to move on. They had to rebuild. They had to do something fresh or something new or else nothing would have happened for them. And for Hashimoto and Muto, moving to all Japan and starting zero one clearly put five or six years on their career. You have to say that. It's, you know, it's, it's the only thing that was, you know, it, it, extended their main event status for a long period of time it made them viable money earners for two or three companies for a long period of time so it was it was well worth them doing it uh but essentially this is really not particularly strong not particularly strong style and sorry uh, not particularly king's road which is what obviously all japan is famous for because this is two of the most famous practitioners of uh, strong style being lined up for matches with one another and there, there is kind of this is where the period where Muto King's Road kind of gets aired the the ultimate proponent of Muto King's Road is Seiya Sanada uh, in New Japan Pro Wrestling he is like the perfect embodiment of that style he was a protege of Muta's in the All Japan Dojo he learned that All Japan King's Road storytelling style with that strong style twist that new japan guys have that you got from muto and it kind of twists the all japan story uh long until muto forms wrestle one about 10 years away from this um and takes those guys with him 
for the, the company that had a fairly short life of only six or seven years, oh, but did an awful lot in six, seven years. Yeah, it it became, that was known as the third schism. And we'll get to that when we get to that. But let's concentrate on the second, on this second schism. Um, so that tag match happens. And then you cut to Tashimoto challenging Kiyeji Muto for the All Japan Triple Crown, which is just weird because, like, you were like, this is literally the two biggest names in New Japan Pro Wrestling history challenging for the All Japan Triple Crown. There's well, no one called laugh? Misawa or Kawada or one of the four pillars there. What makes me laugh is you've got Power Rangers Death Mask Muto, which is still one of the greatest masks ever worn by anyone in a wrestling ring. He's just finished a match. Hashimoto comes out. There's a lot of guys around the ring. And Muta just mists him. A brawl breaks out. <laughs> Hashimoto is there just wiping, like doing the smart thing and getting the mist out of his eyes. And then he still just, he's just stood there red-faced from the mist, kicks the crap out of people and just still lays out the challenge like nothing's happened. It's amazing. Yeah. It's the most compelling <laughs> challenger section I've ever seen because Hashimoto just no-sells one of Muta's deadliest weapons. <laughs> yeah. Because he's the destroyer, and the destroyer wouldn't, like, you know, back down to anything, including being blinded. <laughs> <laughs> After that, we have a bit of a change of pace. Hideki Osaki and Shige Okimura, who was an old All Japan veteran, uh, go up against Hiroto Yoki and Kohei Sato. Koei Sato is 43 years old and uh, made his comeback to All Japan Pro Wrestling yesterday. Oh, he did a press say, conference. I thought, I thought you meant at the time here. I'm like, he does not look 43. No, he's 43 now. <laughs> I was going to say. Here he looks yeah, like no. the Japanese version of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Yeah, well, funnily enough, because Striga uh, of Cage Match fame and Pro Wrestling Illustrated was actually watching uh, the press conference for All Japan Pro Wrestling yesterday. He was like, hey, it's Koei Sato. And I was like, I'm just watching Koei Sato for the Trivia Show. I was like, yeah, yeah, he was pretty good back in the day. It's the first time he's made a, an All Japan appearance in 17 he's years. He's such a cocky guess. And the has the worst and has the worst tattoo I've ever seen. <laughs> Bless yeah, him. I, I'm quite surprised. He has a tattoo, yes. to be honest, given how tattoos were perceived at the time. Yes, this and even before... to this... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, even to this day, um, I've talked to Josie Gabbert about the fact that she couldn't go into some gyms because she had visible tattoos. Um, she's got even more tattoos now. I'm quite scared for the next time I go, considering I've got three more since I last went. And I can't quite well, hide these ones as easily. They're on your face, aren't they? No, my lower <laughs> arms, and it's way too warm over there to wear long sleeve t shirts or hoodies. Oh, in winter. <laughs> Anywho, uh, yes, uh, Sato tagged with Hiroki Yokai, who was a mixed martial artist and pro wrestler, as noticed by the um, uh, bare MMA gloves and bare feet. And they went against Hideki Osaki again and Shogi Okimura. And this was actually. Pretty damn good for a uh, up and comers young boys mid cardy match. It was pretty intense, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it was quite quick. It didn't last very long, but it was very, very good for what it was. And the young guys, the younger guys, got the win. Yeah, that it's was interesting. Not what you always expect. No, and this is the thing. It's like the 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 is it's pretty even as you go through this tape as to who won what, where, and when. Um, but they didn't like. How can I put this? When you look at interpromotional feuds down the years in Japan, the most famous one is UWFI versus New Japan, and UWFI were built up as a pretty big thing in the New Japan universe at the top of the card, but the undercard guys lost all the time. But it didn't matter because they had Takada until Takada got hammered in 12 minutes by Ashimoto and then completely destroyed his aura and that was UWFI done. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, it was UWFI went home with their tails between their legs, never to really assert themselves as a company again. Because when you're supposed to be the real wrestling promotion and a fake wrestler beats you with a figure four leg lock, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going to... that, And that was an intentional finish that was booked that way. UWFI was pretty much destroyed. Whereas with this... <laughs> It was and it wasn't. Hmm. UWFI had, had open grandstand challenges and said for years and years that other wrestling is fake and that uh, there was always a challenge, open challenge to anybody in the wrestling world to come on, take, take on their champion Takada. And then they ran out of money <laughs> and went to New Japan. For, um, well, they went to... Go on, John. So this was basically the best way to say, right, we're closing down shop, but we want to do it in style. Can you help? Yeah, pretty much. The, I mean, New Japan had them over a barrel, and the deal was Takada fills out the halls. We use as much, get as much out of them as we possibly can, and then we're going to bury you. Take it or leave it. And UWFI took it. Though from what I was reading in Chris Charlton's book, the... The UWFI guys didn't know about the booking of the final matches until the end, um, closer to the end, and they didn't realize it was going to get buried that badly. They, they knew they were going to lose. They weren't going to win it. And there was the New Japan-Big Japan feud, and Big Japan didn't care if they lost because they were a tiny company. <laughs> yeah, I remember writing about that at the time. They yeah, was the, yeah, they were like, well, of course you're going to beat us. You're New Japan Pro Wrestling, 40 years of experience. You know what you're doing. We're just a little company that does death matches. It'd be right. It'd be okay. If we lose, we lose. So like Big Japan got a lot of exposure out of it for not going into it as like this life or death for the end of the company thing. And this is what's happening here. It's just a strict sporting rivalry between two companies who are prepared to go 50-50 because putting Triple Crown on Hashimoto is money. <laughs> which is what we get to in a couple of matches time. But let's go back to this next match. It was Arashai, sorry, Arashai, Kendo Kushin, Nobuyoku Araya, and Satoshi Kojima versus Kazuki Oskazawa, Masato Tanaka, Ryusai, and Shinjiri Otani in actually one of the best 10-man tags you're ever likely to see, despite the fact two of the people in it clearly can't wrestle. Um, <laughs> however, actually not that bad. What did you think of this? Yeah, it was one of those really fun, like, total clusterfuck type of a match. There's just a lot going on. With a lot of decent <laughs> people and two people who are trying their bestest and being hidden. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the best. I promised I was going to interrupt less in this one. It's not going well. Go on. You you try desperately not to interrupt, but as soon as I go, you start to start talking. Anyway, carry on. You were going to say. Just looking at the name value alone, you can sort of tell that a lot of these people are going to mesh well together because they've either already meshed well in previous matches or you just know the styles. Then there's Arashi, who is terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying in a good way or terrifying in a bad way? Both. I think I'll go with both. <laughs> yes, he's a former he's a former sumo. He was alright. <laughs> but I'll in, in the class later down the line, what I mean by yes. terrifying. Is it the, the 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 last match on this tape is unfortunately a bit of a damp squib, which we'll explain in a moment. But this tag match was actually it was a pretty healthy representation of what was going on in both companies. Some good stuff, some bad stuff, but some overarchingly good storytelling. The next match is the Great Muta. Obviously, a very different animal to Kiyeji Muto because they are, in fact, two different wrestlers, even though they have the same movesets and are, in fact, the same person. The Great Muta is not Kiyeji Muto. That's that, that, straight up and down. He just isn't. <laughs> And Shinya Hashimoto is, is friggin' Shinya Hashimoto. And by gum, you got all of the Hashimoto you could possibly ever want in this matchup with the Great Muta. It's an absolute barn burner. This is kind of... 
if you were looking for the quintessential Hashimoto match, I'd point you in this direction. Hashimoto doesn't do anything for 15 minutes. This is slow burn. He's the absolute king of slow burn title matches. It's just his style, just his pace. He makes his big comeback. He wears down his opponent, who gets another chance to ride on top. But eventually, Hashimoto wins. Hashimoto was a genius at taking you on an emotional ride and just powerhousing his way through. And the fact that his avalanche pile driver, sorry, avalanche brainbuster and his Northern Lights DDT are two of the most over wrestling moves I've ever seen. I mean, as soon as he grabbed somebody up for the suplex position, the crowd just went silent. And then there was this buzz, and then you knew the lucky avalanche was coming. Or if he just grabbed his tights in a certain way in a front face lock, the crowd went crazy. And it's it's really influential on what we see in the main event in New Japan Pro Wrestling today. Kazuchika Okada watches a lot of Shinya Hashimoto tapes. I guarantee it. Because Okada's notoriously a slow starter, but he does pace his matches in very much the same way. And to me, this is the quintessential Hashimoto match. And maybe the quintessential Muto match too. Uh, Muto's performance is absolutely spot on here. Oh, sorry, Muto's performance. What's your thoughts on this, John? This might be one of the best matches of this time period I have ever seen. It is incredibly violent, incredibly emotional. It is incredibly draining at times <laughs> because of just how intense it's getting. You've got the best of Muta, who, who even gets the mist in twice and can't finish the job, which just goes to show you how good Hashimoto is supposed to be, like, is being built up to be. And, yeah, I'm pretty sure Hashimoto's trying to break the Muta scale for blood loss as well. <laughs> you have to bear in mind... a lot. Muta lands four Shining Wizards, and it only took three to get rid of Tetsuya Nato ten years later. <laughs> this is so that... genuinely matchmaking 101. Like, you yeah. should be shown this match and be trained. If you are going into a main event style title match, you need to be like this. You need how to do this. You can't do this because only these Tai could do this. But tell this story and you won't be far off. Um, yeah, the blood loss is actually to levels of grimness. Um, and please don't watch this if you're of a weak disposition. But please I'm pretty do. Sure your it. reaction will make you laugh. <laughs> I am but, not. Uh, but um, if you manage to keep up with most of the troop in your show, you'll be all right. It's actually, it's not as grim as the deathmatch stuff we watched the other week, but this is pretty grim. Um, it, it is great storytelling because like these two guys' stories have been linked together over the space of 20 years. And really, Muta didn't really face Hashimoto when Hashimoto was on top of New Japan in the mid-90s because uh, Muta was injured. For a lot of that time and vice versa Hashimoto was injured when Muta was there so they never really, the, of the three musketeers with Chono, they didn't really wrestle each other a ton they tagged together a lot and they were always linked together as the three saviors of New Japan in the mid 90s but it wasn't really the kind of thing that they did on a regular basis and, and it was interesting to see these two after 20 years of knowing each other, finally getting to really let go in the main event of a big match. It took them both being presidents of their own companies to be able to make that happen. And you know the best thing? What's that? Um, like, you see so many... Um, again, it goes back to Yakuza 2, the video game, where there's just loads of them sort of reunited. Yeah, yeah as like evil land sharks it's hilarious <laughs> but uh, yeah i couldn't get over how good this match was like i remember waking up before i watched the tape and you were hyping the match and i was like okay this will be pretty good and then after i watched it i was just like wow yeah it, it's just it that good blows you away it's and it's not overly long either it's about 20 minutes give or take it feels get, a lot longer you get all the sort of emotional exhaustion of an hour-long match condensed into 20 minutes of just sheer brutality 
I think that's the thing. I don't think matches necessarily have to be 45 minutes for them to be great. I think J.J. White versus Kota Ibushi is a good ex- way of expression. There's a 45-minute match that needed to be 45 minutes. They couldn't have told that story in 20 minutes. But if you get it, if you hit the notes right, you don't need longer than 20 minutes. You just need the right time to tell the story of your match. And this was perfect. In I wish Sonata would take more lessons in that. Sonata's taking enough lessons off Moto. <laughs> so yeah, but through half an hour of Sonata, it gets very painful at times. I think that's. I think the thing is with Sonata, and we're going off on a tangent again, but we should talk about him now as an example. We've just been talking about his mentor. I think Sonata needs to reinvent himself again. He's not cold school anymore. He's kind of this watered down version of cold school because, you know, the crowd, the fans decided he was popular and he's kind of gone with it, which is the right thing to do. It's obviously the sensible thing to do if you want to sell T-shirts and make money. But that cold hearted killer that LIJ hired is no longer there, is he? Yeah, I miss so, Mohawk. Yeah, I think, I think he's got to kind of like reinvent himself again, but not happy-go-lucky, smiley, Babyface Sonata from Impact Wrestling Wrestle One Days because good God that was dreadful. Anyway, um, let us move on. Koei Sato then wrestled Arashi, um, which was kind of like all right because Sato has a lot of kind of cocky heel goodness to him, and Arashi was willing to do what he was told, so <laughs> it worked I, out all right. Really, I felt very sorry for Sato at the end of this match. Yes, Arashi was a New Japan, All Japan regular. He was reasonably handy because he was a big last lad and he could throw his weight around. But two things, his cardio was dreadful. So when he's wrestling somebody like Sato, who's pretty nimble, Sato has to do a lot of the work. And secondly, he just was too big. He still hadn't slimmed down enough to be a viable main event contender. Not that that would stop him because obviously he was very popular from his sumo days. His finisher was a frog splash. Yes. Sato is built like a stick insect. And that (laughs) crashed onto him to finish the match. I would have just said no. I am am not built to take that. I do not want to break my ribs being hit by that. (laughs) Well... There we are, and that was that. There's not an awful lot else to be said about that. What was good, though, was Kazayashi and Jimmy Yang versus Loki and Tatsuhiro Takikawa. I never thought I'd say the words Kazayashi and Jimmy Yang in something good. That's not fair. Kazayashi is awesome. And Jimmy Yang's actually a handy professional wrestler. And Takikawa is awesome, and Loki is, well, yes. Um, Loki's always a good professional wrestler. He's just insane human being and this is the thing this is twitter thing is just no what happens (laughs) he's gone so far off the deep end that divers can't reach him anymore how far off the reservation is he this time uh he one sec i'm gonna have to bring the tweet up because i cannot remember it word from word but it's um it's a doozy whilst you're doing that i will give you a short potted history of loki in Japan, Loki, obviously having that strong style with big mixed martial arts influences, is a big deal in Japan. The only issue is he has literally left every company he's worked for on bad terms, starting with Wrestle sorry, Zero One. He then moved on to New Japan Pro Wrestling, where he got a main event feud and actually was IWGP Heavyweight Champion, defending going into Wrestle Kingdom against Prince Devitt and Kota Ibushi a couple of years ago. And then he fell out with New Japan and he went to All Japan where Akebono landed on him and he sued All Japan for his medical insurance because he got injured, uh, even though it was already kind of a given that he'd be given extra money as compensation for spending time out. Then announced his retirement and turned up in Impact Wrestling three weeks later. Have you found it yet? Yes, I, <laughs> I found it at about the um, New Japan explanation, but I was intrigued to hear bad decisions Loki makes because he's so great in the ring like I will never take Um, anything away from Loki the wrestler but Loki the person just seems to be all over the bloody place (laughs) but uh, yes this is is, um, 
you know we thought TJP was bad. We 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 were ranked. Me and Chrissy, my friend who I watch wrestling with on a Sunday night, were trying to rank the most awful people in wrestling. <laughs> oh, you you you've got to be ready for this hot take. We can lie to about COVID threat in US elections. Big tech is complicit and in human trafficking. <laughs> Ask Jack about his verses or Hollywood about the Getty. Enough rewarding of cowardice. Apathetic habit is why pain is coming. People too comfortable, emotionally undisciplined to care. It, okay. It, it sounds like some kind of Morse code for help me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think someone's been reading too many QAnon threads on Reddit. But anyway... It's like people like I, to make the CTE jokes. But, like, I don't think people, it's CTE. I think he's just had too much internet and too much free time. Yes. I don't like the fact that people make CTE jokes because it, it's not pleasant and we need actually more coverage of CTE properly in professional wrestling because then a lot of issues would not happen. But equally... The the list the list we got at the top of the list was Austin Aries followed by uh, Will Ospreay and then um, TJP and Flip Gordon were kind of in between there and then uh, I think we can put Loki below Flip. Flip's fairly harmless though because he is really stupid. Loki's not uh, stupid. That's the thing. Loki. That's it. He's an intelligent Both. individual. It's just something's gone wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move, let's talk about this match because actually it was a lot of fun. And Jimmy Yang was fresh off his WCW WWE run, and Kazayashi too was fresh off his WCW Well, he didn't make it to WWE; he just kind of went home. Uh, and Takawa, like we said, is an intense individual, as is Loki. So that was two very intense individuals against a happy-go-lucky kind of heelish team in Hayashi and Yang. Which was the odd disposition of two heel teams, because it was wrestle. It was Zero One's heel team versus All Japan's heel team, so it kind of worked on that really level. Fun. But it was just a fun match. It was just two teams having a wrestling match, which wasn't a bad thing on this particular point in the tape. Not to mention, Hayashi would go on to be quite a celebrated junior heavyweight. He already was at this point because he had been. I can't remember his alter ego, but he he was. In the original first generation of Michinoku Pro. And he left to go to WCW because he had a big money offer, which obviously you go because you're never going to be the great Sasuke or Super Delphin, are you? Even no matter how good you are, Sasuke and Delphin are always going to be the top draws in that company. And he was like, all right then. So he left for WCW, made a ton of money, and then went back to Japan with a full time job with All Japan Pro Wrestling, which 20 years later he still has. And is still considered one of the best glue guys in professional wrestling. He holds everything together. I was watching a card on that giant Baba Destroyer Memorial show, and he basically, the entire match resolved around him. <laughs> I it's just like, he, just... He, he, does quite, he does a good job of keeping it together in this match as well. Yeah, he just kind of... of... Sorry, I was going to say, he just kind of stood there and the wrestling happened around him. It was like watching somebody direct traffic. It was awesome. These two teams just got each other, and it worked really damn well. Yes, absolutely. Unlike the last match on this card, which is Arashi versus Shinya Hashimoto. Now, Shinya Hashimoto is arguably, well, let's say, one of the top 15 male workers ever. But even he <laughs> can have trouble with someone who blows up after three minutes. So Arashi is, like we said, not really ready for the main event, but they're going to push him anyway because he's popular. So this match wasn't, it actually wasn't dreadful. It was actually fairly watchable. But its, it's main job was to set up the big match with Kojima, which it did it very, very well because Hashimoto was able to destroy Arashi just as he needed to to make that dominant presence felt to make him feel like a threat to Kojima. A threat, even not a threat. A threat to Kojima, and that's really where this match kind of lays. It's it's well put together for what it is, but it kind of lays in there as a as a storyline match rather than an actual main event match. Even though it's a Saka Joe Hall, it was a big crowd. Yeah, as you said, it's it's not bad. It's just 
when you compare it to the rest of sort of what you've seen and what we know Hashimoto is capable of, it's it's just a tad lacking. It's like he's trying his best, and as is Arashi, like he's limited, but he knows what to do to a degree. He knows how to make it work. And with Hashimoto directing traffic, you do still get a watchable match that does what it's supposed to do. It's a shame we never got the Kojima match on this tape, though. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, I'm not it's... sure. It was, yeah, I'm not sure if it, um, how far into the future it was. All of these matches occur between late 2002 and uh, mid-2003. And we obviously leave the tape with Hashimoto as Triple Crown Champion. And it kind of gives you a good snapshot of the company where it's established itself and also gives you a good snapshot of what all Japan Pro Wrestling is about. It's a really interesting slice of wrestling history that I think we both recommend you should watch. Oh, 100%. This this is like this was a two-hour breeze. Compared to some of the things you've sent me that are like half the time, this felt like nothing. To <laughs> I think this is the thing. It there is this is all killer, no filler. This is this is picking the best bits of a six month feud, so it's easier to make it watchable. You know, I think I'm still of the belief that you should watch wrestling shows from beginning to end because they are intended to be three hour or two hour or four hour productions that are paced accordingly, and you're supposed to not watch them like one match at once. You're supposed to watch the whole thing like a film. Um, but this one is probably the best actual compilation tape I've ever seen, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, they were all matches. They weren't highlights. None of these matches were cut down once. I'm pretty sure. No. Not even the old just... one. They were all full-length matches. So you've got two what? hours of full-length matches. All Japan knew what they were doing back then, for sure, as far as production was concerned. Right then, that pretty much closes this chapter on the Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling in Japan. I'd like to thank my guest today, Mr. John Dinsdale, Steel Chair Wrestling Magazine. Thank you, sir. Where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at Twitter handle John Deathman, the newly dubbed literary king of the death matches. I wonder how long I'll keep that <laughs> one. And yeah, that is the gateway to find all my writing, all my opinions, all my takes. Not that I really have any. And yeah, it's just a great place to interact with me if you so wish. Okay. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show True Penny Show on Twitter. On Facebook, the True Penny Show. On Patreon, the True Penny Show as well, where you can keep the True Penny Show free forever. Forever. And by the way, our mate, Ben Spindler, co-founder of this particular wrestling show production, has a new podcast with his and him and his mates from Bristol called, he says, looking up on the internet, The Random Wrestling Review, where each week they will pick a show and randomly review it. It's very Bristol accent heavy, I will warn you. <laughs> like, barely understandable. Um, but it is a good show. It is fun, because it's Ben, he knew it was going to be fun. The This week, their first week show they did last week, and they looked at the WWE Royal Rumble of 1995, and this week, they looked at the NWA sold-out show of 1997 and opened the show with a large segment entitled Penises of Wrestlers I've Seen. Anyway... The Pancreas show from last uh, weekend. Was the, was the denouement? Like every time one of them bent over, you could see the shape of a bloody elephant hanging out. Nice. <laughs> thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing that, John. Appreciate that. Hey, for those of you relevant. who haven't eaten, <laughs> anywho, <laughs> thank you for listening to the Troop and Show this week. Next week we are back at New Japan Pro Wrestling because it's new beginnings when there will be new things that begin. For new Japan Pro Wrestling. I mean, if you've kept and... up the re- with the results, something new has already happened, and people are not happy about it. I haven't seen that yet. I know that everyone's dead happy that Tenzin beat the shit out of the Empire, and everyone should be happy about that. Take care. We'll see you soon. Bye! Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? 
Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.